the Orthodox tend to think that people who, like the postmodernists and me, believe neither in God nor in some suitable substitute, must feel that everything is permitted, that everybody can do what they like and just embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 154 of Embrace the Void, where it's impossible to tell the philosophy and the culture war apart anymore. I am your host, Aaron, and this week is another installment of our Better Know a Philosopher series, uh, with just like a light dusting of culture war. <laughs> All right, let's get better knowing. My guest this week is Adrian Rutt, adjunct at Cleveland State, editor at Liberal Currents, and most importantly, the manager of the Rorty Stan account on Twitter. Adrian, would you like to say hi to the void? Uh, hello, void and people of the void. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. I understand that you enjoy the show and we've had lots of fun interactions on Twitter uh, over the years. So I'm glad to have you on to finally help us get to, to better know Rorty. Yeah, it's kind of it's a pleasure. Honestly, I think Rorty's sometimes unfairly maligned and treated, especially in the quick back and forth on, on Twitter. But you know, I'm I'm glad I can maybe defend him a little bit here if I can. So, <laughs> no, it's good. I think we're finally rehabilitating some important personalities on on the show. Um, before we talk about Rorty, though, do you want to let folks know a little bit about your background in philosophy and you know when you're not standing Rorty, what kinds of material you're interested in? Yeah, sure. So my background is actually pretty typical and kind of. Weak, I guess, in some senses. I, I honestly came to philosophy and intro to philosophy in undergrad. I know there's that's a similar story. I don't have any flashy story about it. But I started taking some independent studies late in undergrad, and that drew me to philosophy and kind of the rest is history. And, you know, I, I didn't find Rorty until, you know, in intro to philosophy, they don't talk about philosophers who <laughs> disparage the tradition, mm -hmm. or at least that's what critics will say he did or, is, or did, you know, throughout his life. But um, so I didn't get much introduction to pragmatism or Rorty during my traditional kind of philosophical education. So I came to him much, much later. I happened upon a book on Dewey and mm -hmm. he was in a footnote somewhere. And I was like, oh, who's this Richard Rorty figure? Which is weird. I, I'm not in I was never in the mainstream. So mm -hmm. uh, to some listeners, I'm sure people are hearing me right now, like, how did you not hear Richard Rorty, you know, coming into philosophy and you know, maybe that is a little odd, but I... Uh, I, think, I think there are lots of names to learn and lots of paths in, and so I, I don't think it's that that bad. Yeah, it's it, it's not too bad. I guess I'm making it sound worse, but I'm, I'm definitely not, you know, uh, I'm the opposite of Rorty, as you probably or may or may not know. He was a huge name dropper. I mean, he read so <laughs> much, and I'm, I'm sort of the opposite of that. I've kind of narrowed my interests. I read the early pragmatists, and then I read some of the neo-pragmatists, and I was like, oh, well, I guess... That's it for me. I mean, <laughs> obviously, I could fill the details more on why I, I think that. Yeah, what, what appealed to you broadly from the pragmatist world? Well, it's going to sound bad because it's going to make me sound like a bad philosopher. Um, <laughs> but it's they're looking back at the tradition, Dewey and James especially. I mean, I go full Rorty on most of his interpretations of, of philosophy. But Dewey and James came on the scene and were just like, what we've been doing here in philosophy is just not productive work. Mm -hmm. Dewey famously says, you know, philosophers should start concerning themselves with the problems of men and not the problems of philosophers, you know, uh, which is, mm -hmm. I think, a pretty damning critique of analytical philosophy. I mean, I guess you could say humankind now, you know, that's probably more generationally appropriate, but the point stands. So I took James's and Dewey's critique to heart. 
Um, and then later, Rorty just basically capitalizes on looking back and saying, look, this this philosophical project has kind of gone off the rails. So mm-hmm. um, and we can get into that a little bit, why he thinks that. Um, I'm sure yeah, we will. And, so yeah, that, I'm curious that, to talk about that and, and why, what what it is that are the questions that they would put in those two different camps that you just described, the human problems versus the philosopher problems. Yeah, and that's going to be a huge point of contention. And obviously, there is going to be some pushback. And, and Rorty kind of, when he's at, you know, his early, in his early career when he's teaching, he's going to say, you know, I'm at Princeton and in the first 10 years, I'm just trying to learn all the analytical philosophy I can. And the second 10 years at Princeton, he's basically like, I'm challenging this tradition and everybody's starting to look like reactionaries. And and he's not using reactionary and hmm. like, a, they're just, you're, you would be defensive, rightly so, over your tradition. If someone came out and said, all these problems you're working on are just, you know, these are pseudo problems and these are kind of linguistic confusions or whatever. And he basically says that. And of course, if you're a philosopher, I mean, I totally sympathize. You know, if you've written 30 papers on whatever free will, you know, any problem, you name it. And someone comes along and says, these, these problems just mm-hmm. don't matter. Yeah, I'm, of course right. you're going to dig in. So. <laughs> so I do. I also feel like on some, you know, like maybe it's a, a specific kind of saying they don't matter that like we can talk about, you know, in, in a little bit here. But. There is a sense in which, you know, all of philosophy is like the next generation comes along and says, no, y'all are doing this all wrong for a variety of reasons. And even though they end up kind of often, you know, reinventing the same thing with slightly different language a lot of the time. So let's maybe let's look with some bio first and then we can get into theory Uh side here. So who is Richard Rorty and why does he deserve a Stan account? Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I... uh... I've realized now that I've taken upon myself a mantle that I'm not sure I can totally defend with the the Stan account business, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> You're gonna change your uh, name. We're gonna go private. Yeah, I'm, after this, I'm going locked account, no doubt. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so Rorty, he was born in the 1930s, and he basically grew up. He was very precocious. I mean, you should see the letters this kid was writing at 13 and 14 to his dad. His parents were famously not famously i shouldn't say that but they they weren't you'd think rorty grew up in like a very rich you know kind of north atlantic Mm -hmm. kind of household and letter you know his parents were people of letters and right you know and they were but they weren't rich at all so you should see some of the letters he's writing to his parents while he's you know at college saying you know i'm I know you can't afford this. And I mean, it's just like insane. I definitely urge people listening to go read these. I mean, I can barely write the way he Mm -hmm. was writing at 13 about these letters. So, yeah, I don't know how deep you want me to go. I guess, you Mm -hmm. know, he born in 1931, you know, very traditional kind of academic career in terms of analytical philosophy. You could definitely see the first 20 or 30 years of his life. He's just working on analytical problems. So um, and it's not until, you know, his middle years, I guess, if you were in a break of his life that he kind of starts to turn away from the tradition. And he doesn't even do that totally in the middle. He just kind of starts questioning and ruffling some feathers. Wakes from his dogmatic slumber. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's definitely he wakes from his dogmatic slumber, slumber not um, by Hume, but definitely like Sellers and Davidson. Those are the people that wake him from his dogmatic slumber. So so early on, he's got a pretty typical, I mean, not to say his child is a typical, I mean, he once served sandwiches at a party that John Dewey was in attendance. Mm-hmm. Like he's in the know, his parents are journalists, they're intellectuals still. Um, his mom was working, a journalist working on race relations in the US. So like he's in it. And I mean, obviously that's goes, you know, a lot of the way and saying why Rorty, you know, became the kind of person he was. Um, and some people will even say, you know, both of his parents being journalists really helped him write journalistically. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff. I mean, people who have mm-hmm. are definitely familiar. I mean, it is some of the, if you have no idea what's going on in philosophy, he will catch you up. I mean, by, mm-hmm. you know, from a very biased way, but very easy to read, like so clear and, and just such a brave. I mean, people, there's philosophers who took him to task for that even. They'll even just hmm. say like, this is the worst part about Rorty. Like of all the things, you know, writing clear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is really offensive when someone just clearly explains things that it's really mm. annoying. Um, Nothing makes me angrier. Oh, God, so much spite. Um, but honestly, I, I will just cut in. briefly that is part of the reason that he was so you know attractive to me too um dewey Mm -hmm. james is very easy to understand even though he's like all over the place stream of consciousness kind of stuff no pun intended and dewey is just very technical rorty comes along and just is so clear so i mean i can't help but think that's part of the reason why i was drawn to him like oh finally someone who's just you know 
speaking how it is and being clear. And that's not, I know it's a gift, you know, I'm not condemning analytical philosophers or anybody else for not being able to write super clearly. Honestly, Mm -hmm. the more I read Rorty, the more I just think it's innate, which he would probably say is crazy given his philosophy. (laughs) I mean, it is, it is very hard, very rare. And I think undervalued in the academia, right? Like Mm. I think we don't do enough to encourage people to, to work towards writing in simple prose, even, you know, like, like we, we, we are a very technical style i think um which is is frustrating i think for outsiders which i don't love so yeah, and that goes uh, hand in hand with rorty's critique too i mean yeah. he'll even say i mean he'll just say this technicality is born of the project that philosophers think they're up to which mm-hmm. is you know anyway go ahead yeah no and i'm hopeful that we can take that to heart and that like you know as the generations continue to roll through that we can you know reassess the project that we are engaged in as the people who are doing philosophy and see if we can like shift that direction in a in a good synthesis between sort of the stuff that he's being critical of in that situation and the the things that he was being critical of i guess earlier in his life so before we talk about the theory though the one other thing i want to talk about sometimes we like to bring up in the bio side of things is you know, if the individual had anything that was of a particularly voidy nature in their personal bio background that maybe played some role or not potentially in the, you know, the philosophies that they hold. We've talked about folks like Hobbes, who's very explicit about his voidy uh, motivations. And what I, what I caught a little bit when I was reading Rorty's background was it reminded me somewhat actually of um, like an American John Stuart Mill. In terms of like a very precocious person from a very well-educated family, but also like a lot of uh, potentially mental health issues. Do you, what was, what is your feeling about sort of his experiences that may have shaped his, uh, his views of things? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the John Stuart Mill. That's, that's a great point. Cause that is kind of how I see it too. And just a, uh, a different kind of way. And, yeah, so he his father had some interesting spells of uh, I don't know how you call that, just feeling like he was speaking to God directly. Some depression as well, and then Rorty obviously had depression as well. But like I mentioned in the, I mean that would be the voidy things, I guess. If that does that count as voidy? That's yes. not like I, I think okay. having your 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 father sincerely believe that he's talking to God counts as some, yeah. something that one must wrestle with. <laughs> okay, I just didn't know. Like yeah, that no, was for like, sure. right, it is a deliberately enough. ambiguous pragmatic term. I'll give you that. <laughs> um, but that's fine. Yeah, and he he I don't know. You know, he inherits this kind of depression, but his depression definitely is born of not. It doesn't seem to me, and I'm not <laughs> here. I'm playing like psychiatrist, and I shouldn't. But it doesn't sure. seem to be born of any like, you know, uh, neurological or, or or brain chemical imbalance. Because you can see his breakdown that's happening when he's at like the Hutchins College when he's 15 years old. He gets into this college, um, this Hutchins program at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. He enters it in 1946 when when he's you know 15 years old, and this is an experimental <laughs> school that basically is accepting students who only completed two years of high school but are like you said kind of precocious and he gets into this but his letters back home to his parents and his worries about them being able to afford this stuff um this is when he kind of has these mental breakdowns um so that's Mm -hmm. part of the story i mean he's having these you know as a reflection of actual real world events that are happening it's not you know but i think that happens in tandem too i mean if you read any of he's got i'd say three intellectual kind of autobiography essays and and he always talks about this very early on he reads at 13 i think he reads plato and nietzsche and (laughs) his whole worldview is kind of formed by this kind of dualistic nature between these two and saying like plato has got this yearning for absolutes nietzsche is this kind of like destructive force and he has this breakdown Mm -hmm. you know kind of i guess it's like a first world problems breakdown of of who's right here and he's trying to kind of like you know put them together so if anything voidy i guess I guess I know I took your question probably too far, but that's definitely animates Rorty's early life. And he's going to come to hold up that kind of dualism in a weird way later on and try to synthesize all these different thinkers um, in ways that those thinkers themselves didn't always appreciate. And certainly critics 
uh-huh. despised. <laughs> no, I mean, that's pretty on the nose for the kind of voidy stuff I'm interested in. And it, also, another person who it makes me think of alongside Mill is actually Piercig, the guy who wrote uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, who was also mm-hmm. heavily influenced by American pragmatism and also went through a mental break trying to sort of deal with construction and deconstruction and, you know, truth and understanding and all these kinds of issues. So, um, yeah, it's funny. I've actually never read that book. Uh-huh. Um, I know that's a shame, but uh, I don't know how it holds up. <laughs> What's that? I said there's a lot of books in the world. Yeah, but that's a really like when people say you want to get into like philosophy, like people will say start with this, you know, like or, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of thing. But um, it's funny, actually, Rorty mentions in one of his buyers, it's funny that you bring that up because the main target, and I've never read this, so you'll have to maybe mm-hmm. uh, confirm this, the main target of Persig's her main villain is Richard McKeon, who was one of Rorty's teachers at University of Chicago, that his style of philosophy was like one of the main targets in that book. And I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if you know anything about McKeon, but I think so. There's a there's a very there's a scene that's sort of the climax of the story where Piercig is in a class about Aristotle. And I mm. guess it's, pro- it's probably the guy you're talking about, I think. I'd have to double check the name. But, like, he has this moment. And this is, like, at the peak of, like, where Piercig's personality is, like, breaking down. So, it, like, mm-hmm. this is an unreliable narrator kind of story. <laughs> but, yeah. like, in, in Piercig's mind, he makes this brilliant, incisive point about how Aristotle has just contradicted himself about a literal metaphor difference, right? <laughs> and that, like, yeah. he, like, crushes yeah. it. And it's, like, it is, like, the, the um, copy pasta where it's, like, you know, the guy's hand quivers and everybody claps. Right. It's like that's what happens in Piercing's mind. In reality, like he was probably just being a pedantic student in a class, and, right? You know, but um, so that, that that could very well be that. That's exactly that same individual. Yeah. So the connection there. Yeah, I have no no way to confirm that. I should probably read that, but I actually haven't read McKeon. But according to Rorty and plenty of others, he was very historically minded he was one of you know so widely read and just knew the history he would just apparently mm-hmm. according to right he would he would be able to intimidate colleagues you know just by his breadth of knowledge of the history of philosophy which you know Rorty's coming of age you know right when this analytic philosophy is kind of there's this weird tension between doing kind of historical philosophy or history philosophy and analytic philosophy and then even continental philosophy you know thrown in there and and so there's this tension but anyway you know knowing the history of philosophy doesn't sound like all that bad of a thing especially if you know it that well like mckeon was supposed to yeah no (laughs) the impression you get from piercing is that this person is like you said brilliant in the background but like sort of pedantic and interested in like belittling students for not being as well read so that's a a, (laughs) i mean i can't i can't confirm it but it seems very plausible and it's a very funny connection so i appreciate um you tossing that out there so let me let's get folks sort of the basics. What are Rorty's like major works um, that that are significant that that play an important role or that you would even maybe recommend that some folks try to engage with? Yeah. Um, so I'll just say this briefly that Rorty's first half you can if you separate into three parts you can talk about kind of all these different turns and what have you and they're not always helpful. Obviously they're just more mm-hmm. heuristic devices to try and separate. But early on Rorty, like I said, he's at Princeton and he's like, I got to get in with this analytical philosophy business. And so he writes a bunch of papers on mind the mind body problem. Um, and suppose you know I I'll be 100 percent upfront. I've read a few of them. I have never immersed myself in the mind-body literature. I, only mm-hmm. insofar as I teach undergrads the mind-body problem and, you know, philosophy of mind, I know it. But, you know, Rorty's kind of credited for this eliminative materialism position in a way. He never calls it that. But, mm-hmm. you know, other, you know, the churchlands are going to later come in and say, you know, he was on to something here. And he was kind of, weirdly enough, no one ever thinks about it. And if other philosophers of mind listen to this, they're probably going to lose it. But Rorty is kind of, <laughs> Thought, I, I'm almost sure of it, but the way I read the history here, Rorty kind of get, puts this position forward without the name. And so, like, he is kind of the father of that, you know, eliminative materialistic position. Of the, like, illusionist kind of camp, that the functionalist yeah, yeah, yeah. illusionist kind of views. Right. I mean, just that, you know, we can, I mean, man, this opens up a whole new, but, you know, we can stop talking <laughs> about, you know, feelings and beliefs and we start talking about sea fibers and stuff, you know, that, that whole thing. I and mean, he just thinks that there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to talk like that in the future. And that, that pretty much jibes well with his later philosophy about, you know, vocabularies and, and changing our ways of thinking. So, you know, if you're interested in 
that sort of thing. That's his early career. But then he makes this shift. And to That's, answer your question, go ahead. Well, yeah, I'm just a little a little confused there because my feeling from reading some of this stuff was that he also gives a major critique of sort of correspondence theories of truth or things like that or or sort of certain kinds of scientific materialism. So it's interesting to hear that he would adopt that kind of a liminimist approach in that particular domain in that way. Yeah, that is actually a good point. And that's why like it's easy, it's nice to separate Rorty's early analytic work because I think he mm-hmm. definitely makes a turn, but that said, and anybody you can, I encourage anybody who wants to dig in deeper. A fantastic paper by Brandom, Robert Brandom. He wrote a paper on how Rorty's uh, materialism about mind is pretty continuous with the philosophy through the rest of his life. Um, it's a great, mm-hmm. you know, if you can stomach Brandom and his incredibly dense style, and nothing against him, he's he's very smart. But if you can stomach that, it actually shows how it was continuous with these later, you know, criticisms and. Um, these the shift about talking about vocabularies and languages. Um, but yeah, that's a great point. I just uh, because I haven't immersed myself in that literature, I just probably couldn't shouldn't comment on you know that <laughs> aspect. <laughs> no problem. So, um, so you're saying he shifts then from this to what in the middle and later parts? Yeah. So in 1979, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature comes out, and that's his big kind of that's his bombshell in analytic philosophy. Or at least, I mean that that got pretty much no good reviews from inside the academy so if anybody's interested in that <laughs> just from a historical perspective that's an interesting read was he canceled did they, was, yeah, did they i mean did they cancel him well not really because he won the macarthur fellowship <laughs> two years later <laughs> the genius grant and it was like are bad what? at canceling <laughs> right and it was yeah this guy sucks and here's a lot of money um <laughs> But he wins this fellowship and it was like the first like no strings attached fellow MacArthur fellowship and one of the hmm. few. And, you know, anyway, so he publishes that in 79 and um, he's in later years stood by that everything. He's like everything I said in that book, I like stand by. But I, you know, he's made modifications, you know, sure. over the years. But a- anybody that book is basically a systematic debunking of the project of 20th century philosophy and so he's trying to debunk this and basically say we got on the wrong path. And, and he equates 20th century philosophy with just epistemology. He thinks after mm-hmm. Kant, philosophy is just now simultaneous, you know, the same thing as epistemology, which I actually think there's some evidence for. I think he wasn't off the mark in saying that, whether that's true now, I, you know, I, I haven't really surveyed the scene. I imagine it's kind of similar. But um, so that's that book. And that's, you know, I would definitely encourage people to read that and it's fantastic um it stands up still you know some Mm -hmm. many years later um and then he publishes a series of essays in 82 um consequences of pragmatism and then 89 is when he publishes his just contingency irony and solidarity which is just if i would direct anybody to a book it'd probably be that one and Hmm. the reason i say that is because in Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature that he publishes in 79 that just, you know, quote unquote, rocks the philosophical community, which it doesn't rock it because everybody hated it. So he's responding to the, he's like fighting the tradition within the tradition still. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And this is something that, you know, uh, if anybody is interested in the history of pragmatism, this is something that a lot of pragmatic historians are you know, people looking back at James and Dewey, this was, they said, is their biggest problem is James and Dewey were so caught up in trying to respond to critics that they never fully broke through and were able to offer their own kind of philosophy. I mean, that's not entirely Mm -hmm. true, but there is some evidence for that in that, you know, when you're putting such a revolutionary philosophy through and then you have critics like, you know, Bertrand Russell just like saying, oh, like, so pragmatism is just believe if it makes you feel good, you know, and (laughs) you're just going to spend a lot of time trying to write back and be like, okay, no, that's nonsense. And so, uh, James and Dewey kind of sort of get caught up in the debates of the day. And so that's kind of what Rorty's doing in philosophy in the mirror of nature. And then the only reason I say he moves on to that in 89, you know, he writes contingency, irony and solidarity. And that's like his first actual, like, this is how we should philosophize. Like he's not worried so much as responding to the tradition or critiquing the tradition. He's kind of putting forth a more positive uh, mm-hmm. vision of what he thinks philosophy should be. I mean, it's not that he's not philosophizing. It's just it's definitely a different tone. He's more confident in his beliefs, you know, about, you know, that he forms throughout these years. He's giving a positive, a positive account rather than a negative account. Yeah, in some senses, but he's still debunking. Like a lot of Rorty's mm-hmm. project could be a lot of just kind of 
bringing the pretensions of philosophy down, mm-hmm. you know, and th- I mean, all, pretty much was just all philosophy. Kind of that's just what we do. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, but he's, he's an equal opportunity anti-authoritarian mm-hmm. though. I, I mean, mm-hmm. that's what's beautiful about, I think his philosophy is that he's going to go like science, knock you down some pegs, literature, you know, we'll prop you up to the level of everybody else. Philosophy, you're not the arbiter of reason knock you down right so he's just going through and kind of that's what he's doing in that book too in a sense so um mm-hmm. yeah i know i'm doing a little scattershot here but <laughs> no no it's good and then he's got i think there's one more that we want to at least include on this major list which is uh, there was one uh, towards the end where he sort of gets critical of some critical theory i think but also mm-hmm. yeah right it, it mostly from what i gather is critical of their sort of pessimism or lack of solutions is that fairly accurate you think yeah, so in 1998, he comes out with Achieving Our Country, which is a uh, play on a Baldwin quote. And this book, well, for one, it was kind of interesting because it kind of like surprised people when it was published. Because he ha- he doesn't really publish, or already hadn't up until this point, published any overt kind of political tracks. And this one is just, you could just put this on the shelf next to any of the kind of like, you know, the titles you see now. Like, oh, Broken, Why the Country's Broke. You know, those like very, you know, pop political commentary books. I mean, this is right up there with it. It's very understandable. And again, he just walks you through what he thinks are the problems. And and in this book, it's great. I mean, it's I definitely encourage you and others to read it. But he's basically making a case that because of this, you know, the the left, he's calling this like the new left. He calls it the academic left. And they say he they said he just kind of lost sight of the plot here. I mean, so this is where I, I really get into some Mm -hmm. hot water and i i back down from a lot of there's a lot of places on like social media that i'd like to get into this but given the climate um that -hmm. i think people think everyone who has a criticism against something like identity politics you know or critical theory is somehow disingenuous and Mm -hmm. i i mean i'm sure you are aware of that um, but. <laughs> I, I think there's been a lot of escalation, which has made it very difficult to have discussions of genuine criticisms of academia, mm-hmm. broadly speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, too, I think I mentioned this the other day, is that the problem is that the people who are critical of kind of, you know, whatever gender studies, any of this stuff, they mm-hmm. are often disingenuous, right? So, like, you mm-hmm. get these very flamboyant characters in the public eye. And then so everybody is just on the defensive. So any mm-hmm. criticism, legitimate or not, just gets swept away like, okay, you don't understand. Well, right. one thing is true. If you, you can't, you can charge Rorty with a lot of things, but has every commentator, his wife has even said, like, the man read, he read a lot. It's not like he, and he read widely. He didn't mm-hmm. stick to these kind of like little, I mean, he references literature and Baldwin and and poetry and Whitman way more than he even talks about philosophers in his later years. And he does so in achieving our country too. So, I mean, he levels a legitimate criticism against what he would call the academic left and kind of really just taking all the problems into the ivory tower. I mean, if you could be as clear and concise about what he's trying to say in that book. And they said he just, he's an old fashioned liberal and he thinks identity politics and I'm going to be very hesitant using that term, but like mm-hmm. construing everything in terms of identity, he thinks is distracting us from the project of kind of building solidarity. And this is not really necessarily a revolutionary way. Like people have argued this, you know, there's old sure. leftists, you know, are just like, let's get back to class, you know, mm-hmm. um, working class, you know, African-Americans, working class whites have a lot in common. What's with this identity politics business? And, you know, as his 1989 book points out, this, you know, contingency, irony, and solidarity, he's obviously interested in solidarity, you know? So um, he thinks mm-hmm. that's the kind of the biggest problem. Uh, and that's what he kind of talks about in this book. You know, the I the term you think he uses is the spectorial left, you know, the watching from the sidelines left, you know, of the 1960s onward. And mm-hmm. uh, that's so interesting. that's kind of the... Yeah, and I don't want to make the I don't like I'm not trying to make this episode like every other episode that I've been doing recently about social justice, but it is really fascinating to see how people might read or you know, like especially if you got like a shallow reading of Rorty at various points in his life, how you could have very mm-hmm. different impressions about his views on these sorts of things because he's right also connected to folks like Habermas and is reading Foucault and has views about 
you know, epistemology that are the, you know, like he says things that sound a lot like the stuff that critical theorists are getting in trouble with other, you know, like current classical liberals for saying, mm-hmm. you know, things about objective knowledge versus, you, you know, useful knowledge and things like that. So um, I just think it's very interesting how, you know, they're, they're, they're like the good faith reading to me is right. There's a lot of folks on the left on in, in various different ways, trying to struggle with what kind of knowledge we can have and how to, you know, acknowledge our biases in useful ways rather than in performative ways. And he was genuinely concerned about those challenges, but maybe also I think legitimately critical of some of the attempts to, to resolve those challenges. Yeah. I just think he thinks making, these problems, the problems of the academy was like the wrong move. I mean, he's going to grow, he grows up in like this time of like, you know, a lot of activism. And it's weird to say that now because like you look out in the streets now, I mean, Mm -hmm. millions of people are joining and that's, that would definitely be a good sign. But yeah, I just, I think he's, he's critical of these projects. I think they're doing more than they are getting to the bottom of things. And I know we haven't really talked about his, his philosophy, obviously, in these books that he's writing, but he just thinks that this idea that we could get to the bottom of things or that we're like constantly just like unmasking, you mm-hmm. know, oppressions and stuff. He just thinks this is kind of distracting from the actual project of making people's lives better on a day to day basis. And okay. to some extent, I think he has a point there. I mean, mm-hmm. and you could see, read, you know, a handful of the academic articles that come out theorizing these issues i mean if you like i I, i'm i consider myself a rorian so i tend to look at these with kind of like okay well what is this doing right i mean at the end of the day what is it doing so Mm -hmm. maybe i am too dismissive but i think rorian was kind of right about that and there is um i read a recent book it's actually great it's um forget the name it's uh a new yorker just uh author just wrote a book on liberalism um that was good. And he basically makes the point, which I tend to agree with and isn't very popular. And, you know, you can push back because it's a generalization. But he says, look, over the last like 50 years, liberals have won all the cultural victories, like the left hand and the stuff? right. It's new book about decadence, that book. No, no, it's no, um, book, Adam okay. Gopnik. Adam okay, Gopnik. okay. Different, different. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> um, so he writes this and he says, you know, the last 60 years have been mm-hmm. all cultural victories for the left, you know what Rorty would maybe say, academic victories, while the right, we've conceded all the ground policy-wise, right? So, I mean, there is some evidence for mm-hmm. Rorty saying, look, you guys, we're just, you guys are just on the sidelines here, and, and, you're, and, and at worst, these constantly theorizing these problems is divisive. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he just doesn't see the need for some of these problems that seem, I mean, I've recently, there's been a recent debate in social media right now about intersectionality. I mean, I'm not trying to get into it. I know you said you weren't trying to get into it, but <laughs> It's just these concepts, you know, like they just pop mm-hmm. up and you're like, okay, what do you say? What, what are we doing here? What's the end game here with these concepts? And if you can make a case for it, fine, but let's not act like there's not a case, you know, against it too. And that's kind of, you know. Yeah, I think intersectional may not, may not be the best example because I do think that intersectional is a pretty straightforwardly, justifiably useful concept. But I do agree with you, at least like the, like the, the broad strokes of your critique that there's a lot of... You know, there's to me there's a feeling that like publisher parish combined with current like vogues of ideology has, you know, led to a bunch of sort of not super high mm. level material on a couple of these fronts. And that like, you know, that makes it rife for criticism and, and satire, even if the ideas themselves are sort of valuable. Right. And I think that like, you know, I think you could you know, we could we could go down a rabbit hole of like pushback on what has changed over the past 30 years because i think you know for example we've made actual serious policy changes on gay marriage and you can argue Mm -hmm. how that came about as a result of identitarian politics um so i think it's you know it's it's, right i I just let me i want to push back just because it's making me sound like i'm like all in on this you know again like it's so easy to get lumped into like if you're against identity politics i mean for one i think everyone's practicing identity politics so i'll i mean and rorty would be no you'd be like yeah that's fine so but to push back (laughs) just slightly on the intersectionality thing i guess my point was which i didn't make clear at all was that he would take that concept and say fine i mean i look at that concept and say this is a perfectly fine heuristic it works Mm -hmm. but like 
the debates then become about intersectionality rather mm-hmm. than right the actual analyses you know so i, I or yes. or actually offering something like what is born of this approach which is fine i mean there's definitely people who are doing intersectional analysis that we should be reading but i find that like rory would say and even i would agree is that this debate then gets mired in just talk it's like a meta debate about these academic terms that we you know we keep coming to which in okay. a sense it's a little unfair it's like 75 25 75 percent of the debate is about the term itself 25 percent is about you know actual um you know changes we can make so like i, mm-hmm. I guess that's what frustrates even me is like mm-hmm. you always want to ask and Rorty's always going to put the question to you and the pragmatists are always going to put the question to you like what are you doing like what's the cash value of this if, is the cash value and this is something we also can't you know, dismiss is the cash value more trouble than it's worth, right? Like, mm-hmm. is is that and that plays into Rorty's solidarity thing. I mean, if and this is going to sound probably come off way worse, especially since I'm just doing this off the cuff. But <laughs> just like, keep digging; it's fine. No, I'm just kidding. I, I'm just digging. You think I can get a little lower? Throw me a shovel. Um, but you know, you just you think like, okay, so is this alienating whites and the working uh-huh. class? Well, maybe that's not a good project for solidarity, building solidarity, right? And these are the like hard questions that sure. kind of Rorty's putting down the prime. And people just want to dismiss out of hand, like you hear all kinds of people. Well, the white working class or white people, like they've had thirty thousand or three thousand years of go a go of it. You know, they can step out of the limelight. <laughs> but like that's not the right approach in a country that like you have to live with these people, right? And so. The pragmatists, you know, always take this holistic approach. And so that's his focus on kind of solidarity, too. And I understand, you know, coming not not getting to whether it's right. And and I'll say one more thing on this topic, just because I, I always mm-hmm. think about it whenever I see kind of these culture wars play out. And it's like people are so concerned. And this is what he would say, like about what's right and true rather than like how we can all get along for a better future. Like, I know that sounds maybe like rainbows and butterflies. But when you look at the landscape, it's really not. I mean, people are so concerned at alienating other people for the sake of what they think is true rather than trying to kind of build bridges or try and sympathize with their fellow citizens, right? I mean, and this cuts both ways. I'm not just saying, you know. Yeah, right. This is across the board. And so I just think it's it's interesting that the strategy seems to, well, here's the truth. Let the skies fall, you know, let the, let the nation crumble, but this was the truth. So, I mean, that's going to be good for no one. Right. I, 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 I understand. I mean, and I, I certainly don't think that you are, um, like conveying yourself as someone (laughs) who needs to be canceled in any kind of way. Um, Mm -hmm. what I find really just funny in all of this is that like, you know, like before, um, we did this recording, I was listening to some anti, you know, SJW video stuff from the Green mm. Studies folks, and and James quoted a uh, black feminist philosopher, basically saying, you know, we need to stop talking about what is true and start talking <laughs> about what is politically useful. Right. Yeah. Which is in my ear exactly what you just said, you know, with mm-hmm. like some slight tweaks. But like, in a, in like if I give a generous reading of what you just said and a generous reading of what that black feminist author is saying, they sound like the same thing to me or at least close enough that they should be functionally compatible. Um, and right. so like. I, I and this, this this sort of gets this will help us get off the culture war or not maybe not but like will help us at least you know tie it to Rorty's philosophy a little bit not more. before I get canceled though <laughs> right but like um, you know part of this is people have framed the culture war as a debate literally quite literally in the case of certain individuals between the correspondence theory of truth <laughs> and right like some not you know some feels over reels kind of view of truth but when mm. i look at rory like like i could ask of rory did he effectively wasn't his you know one of his major books essentially trying to destroy the correspondence theory of truth with facts and logic and like what is what is rory's take on the relationship between feels and reels Oh, well, that's a good, that's a good segue too, because we're probably get off this topic. I, I just, <laughs> I, I, I feel bad because I feel like I came off very crude in that last little no, segment I just gave, you, but you, I, you I, did not do not. Worry. Okay. Fair enough. But yeah, that's a good point. So in, in philosophy and the mirror of nature, he does come across as, um, destroying this correspondence theory of truth, right? That things kind of, and this, and, and this is all part of these, 
this project that already has, it's his anti-essentialism, anti-representationalism, right? He's, he's against this correspondence. Anything that we're trying to find what is really real or the world out there or the deepest essences of things, he's going to try and debunk. Well, hmm. people, prob- people took this project in... And he admits to this later on in the philosophy of the mere nature and says, okay, so you against the correspondence theory of truth. So what is your theory of truth? Like you're coherent. I mean, he broadly, you could probably in that book, he's about the coherence theory of truth. You know, he believes mm-hmm. he kind of follows Quine a little bit and saying, yeah, it's like about a web of beliefs, kind of that kind of business and more <laughs> or less, you know, but later he's going to go, I'm, you know, I made a mistake. I don't think truth is the kind of thing you need a definition of. <laughs> and <Okay>. so th- <laughs> that's his that's his last, like his kind of his legacy on truth. And that's people who want to hold him to like earlier positions, that's fine. But I, he just destroys this whole debate over correspondence theory. I mean, he shows time and time again how it's such a, it's a project that's doomed to fail. But then he just comes on and says, because it's doomed to fail and the class, classical pragmatists try to do this, you just don't need to have a theory of truth. It, you don't need a, a theory of truth to get by in the world. And if you ask anybody off the street right now, that they get by perfectly well without a theory of truth, right? And so that's kind of some evidence that, you know, maybe maybe this isn't all it's worked up to be. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but that is his position, you know, you know his latest position. What do you think of that, like, refusal to define such a central concept in that way? Well, I think that's fine because what he's saying is, at the end of the day, he's going to, I mean, we're getting into his work now, which is good. He's basically yeah. saying justification is all all we're going to get. And he says mm-hmm. truth is just an extra loaded term, a compliment, essentially, that we pay to sentences that we justify within our community. And that's mm-hmm. all he's going to say. And, and I fully, I mean, I'm on, I'm on board with that, personally, because I, I find that to be the case when people are talking about truth all this time, they're just, and the problem is, then he's going to kind of go back and forth and say, oh, well, I didn't mean to equate truth with justification. And this is in light of, like, critics, you know. And his sure. whole second half of his life is just him answering critics, which is honestly wonderful. They're they're great volumes, and he's done more than many philosophers do, which is amazing, too. But um, but he's just going to say, yeah, like, but justification's all we're pretty much going to get. And, and that's all social norms. That's all mm-hmm. based on kind of consensus within our communities, and that's it, right? So... I'm okay with it. I I don't see how he's necessarily wrong about that. The only thing I can see other people saying is that truth carries force with it, right? But it also carries a ton of problems, right? I mean, when you make everything about a conflict of facts or between truths, I mean, that's a stalemate. Right. I mean, you're not get, you're not getting anywhere. Rather than what Rorty would suggest is, look, if it's all about justification, maybe you should worry more about persuasion. Maybe you should worry more about telling stories that might convince your fellow uh, citizens to adopt this policy or that policy or this view or that view. So, yeah. Does he think I, that I, communities I, can be wrong about things? Yeah, but wrong compared to what? Well, like, yeah, that's so, what uh, like I'm trying to, like, I, I guess wrong here is just going to cash out in terms of they could have views that weren't, I guess, useful to them. Is that the way that things all, all sort of boil like like i guess i'm trying to understand the normativity mm-hmm. behind any motivation for changing the cultural views if it's just like you know if it's kind of a coherence model and the system is mm-hmm. currently cohering right is there no motivation to change it is it you know if you if you have incoherence how do you figure out which things need to be weeded out of the of the model yeah that's an that's an interesting question i it's weird to say wrong when there's no like right as in right as in like capital R transcends, you know, these justificatory practices that we have between individuals. But I mean, this is going to hook up nicely with Rorty's later stuff in Contingent Irony and Solidarity, Solidarity, where he's basically saying, look, we have different vocabularies for different things. And and in a liberal society, sufficiently liberal society, we're going to have all kinds of different what he calls final vocabularies for justifying our practices. And really changing norms is about playing those vocabularies off against each other, right? And mm-hmm. and trying to find new and novel ways to describe ourselves as human beings or as citizens and convincing 
our peers and our citizens and our fellow citizens to try those descriptions on. And he thinks that's how moral progress comes about. It doesn't come about by digging deeper and deeper into the epistemological problems, you know, related to truth and whether we're actually getting things right and or jacking it up a couple levels of uh-huh. abstraction, talking about metaphysical entities, right? He's just going to say, this is how it's done. I mean, that's a very cursory treatment. I know this is just an introduction already, but that's a very yeah. cursory treatment of like what he's trying to say, I guess. Yeah. So I mean, what you're saying there, like, again, and correct me if I'm wrong here, one way to, it sounds similar to is the the accounts of the way that like the postmodernists i guess or uh some folks talk about language and power and that mm. like you know there are no truths about what these words mean there's just what you can convince people to believe about the meaning of these things and that like communication is a game of power where you're trying to like convince other people to adopt your particular perspective in various kinds of ways and i guess i'm curious if there's a meaningful difference between that kind of sense of power and the, you know, like maybe the less terrifying sounding, but like similarly causally effective sense of useful that when we, you know, like we're trying to convince someone of this new idea because we think it's more useful. Is that really much different from this idea of, of language as these power games, especially when like what is more useful is trying to bring about a greater state of social justice by forcing some people to give up some of their income, for example, yeah i mean i would agree with that it just the only thing i would push back on is that mm-hmm. like it's that that sounds like a cynical spin like right just a little bit to, to when i heard it so like it's more like uh um, hmm. like just oh everything's power and that's the end of it like that sounds like a very cynical reading of like i guess Brody's project but i guess i don't know necessarily how i would push back against that and, and I think like, it could be it could be a, a cynical reading or a neutral. Like, I, like I'm not. I don't necessarily want to make a normative claim about like. It may, maybe it is just a fact of the matter that like mm-hmm. language is a, a power game in a non morally problematic kind of way, and then some people play the game unfairly or something. Like mm-hmm. you know, we used to talk back in undergrad about like, well, now you've just violated the rules of the language <laughs> game, right? Yeah. And like, right. what yeah. we mean is you've made an illegal move on the chessboard, and you're not allowed to do that, even if it sounded like a legal move. Um, right? Yeah, and he's gonna have no like that like. Making wrong, but even making wrong moves isn't a thing that's going to like strike. I mean, Roddy mm-hmm. thinks that progress comes about by people making wrong moves, right? Like people mm-hmm. d- in communities, you know, are are heroes who have changed, you know, whatever the culture have usually more often than not been not, you know, it's what people call about like the everybody laughed at. I think it's like Columbus problem. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's something mm-hmm. like that. You know, like, you know, I'm right because every no one agrees with me and no one agreed with Columbus and no one agreed with Newton. So like there is that, There's that problem. Mills. Yeah. What's that? There's that John Stuart Mill again. Yeah. Right. And he's a and he's a fan of Mill. I mean mm-hmm. Rody not to go off topic, he says Mill pretty much gave us the last statement, you know, we needed on political <laughs> philosophies. Um, which is hilarious because he's so Rody, I mean yeah, again, suck this, it, is Rawls. Ter- this, is, this is a terrible inter- did you say Rawls yeah I said suck it Rawls yeah well that's funny because this is such a terrible introduction to Rody. I feel so terrible for doing this but like no it's I'm great so, this is a voidy introduction to Rody. I'm loving it this is so scattershot but Rody famously said like Mill gave us pretty much the last word on political philosophy and he's kind of like if you think about it he wasn't wrong he said what we're all trying to figure out is how to let individuals you know a thousand a million flowers bloom with the least amount of state interference and Mm -hmm. when you phrase the question and that's mill's problem and so when you phrase the question Mm -hmm. that way everything after mill is just that project like what's rawls trying to do what what are all these people trying to do in a sense like you can spin well there's there's one other project at least i think there's the project of how do you govern the least and cause you know and like achieve that liberal dream and then there's the how do you achieve the equitable outcome kind of thing that i think rolls yeah, adds that to be liberalism contained, contained within the first i mean i would contain mm. it that's what that's what i'm saying I, I'll, I'll back up for a second rorty was being like flashy sure I, he's always sure. he always has these throwaway one-liners we're all footnotes love. to plato i get it yeah no and it's, and it's hilarious and i love them because they really grind people's gears so much but i mean 
he would probably, I mean, he would have no problem. He'd be like, yeah, that's, that's the project. That's still mm-hmm. the project, you know, like, and he wouldn't disagree and neither do I. So I just was being, I was just being funny. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what he's saying <laughs> is that the last word was actually from Hobbes and we can all just leave it there. Right. Right. Exactly. And, <laughs> but it's all just working out these implications and, uh-huh. um, yeah. yeah. And Hobbes is, it's, it's just the Republican. I'm a fan of Hobbes, so I don't know if you're yeah. trying to. I can't see no, your face. I'm, so I don't I'm, know if you're I'm subtly trying Hobbes. to trash Hobbes. Or... I'm, well, no, I'm. I'm. I disagree with Hobbes fundamentally on like a metaphysical and a variety of other levels. Yeah, right, but yeah. I also like fully respect his work and think that it is an <laughs> important piece of work to engage with. Um, yeah, so let me no, let me I bring know. another concept in here while we still have time that is often associated with Rorty, and maybe you can mm-hmm. use this to help unpack his views a little bit more here. What is ironism? Um, is this the belief that everything is fundamentally made of iron, or is this a worship of <laughs> the ethics it. of irony? Like, what are we doing here? That's it. You nailed it. Um, yeah, <laughs> everything is made of iron, and we can't Air, change anything. Air, water, or iron. It's all iron. I, I'm buying iron. So the ironist is an interesting character, and this pops up in contingency irony and solidarity, obviously. And um, he's he talks about the ironist as someone who has, as he says, radical and continuing doubts about their final vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I tried to talk about this, and again, I apologize to anybody trying to understand Rorty more by this podcast, because it has been a little <laughs> scattershot, and that's probably my fault. But that said, going back to final vocabularies, he thinks everybody basically walks around with this final vocabulary, which is basically made up of words that we use to justify our actions in our lives. And we have words in it that are he calls thinner, and these are actually kind of funny because you think they're the opposite, like justice and fairness. Um, hmm. They're thinner because... They they're flexible and they get right. They get appropriated oh, okay. in different practical ways, right? That that's is the opposite of that. that way. That terminology is usually yeah. I, know, I usually think of those as thick which, concepts. That's funny, which is weird. But then he says thick concepts are like um, I terrible. Like in um, I can't even think of like England, United States. Mm-hmm, that like mm-hmm. things that are like tangible that we have definitions of that we tend to not uh, we we hold. Um, Closer to our chest, I guess you could say. And he says these thin concepts get appropriate in all kinds of ways. That's neither here nor there. So we all walk around this final vocabulary made up of all kinds of words that justify it. But he basically goes on to say, and an ironist has doubts about that final vocabulary. Um, mm-hmm. And they, because they've been impressed, he says, by other vocabularies. So, and he, and this is why Rorty's great. He says, you know, these other vocabularies come from Baldwin, the poets, the literature, right? And, and, and a lot of people credit Rorty with, um, literature was kind of um, pushed aside by philosophers is not really getting, I mean, mm-hmm. you probably know this and everybody listening knows this, you know, it's not really getting at any truths about, you know, human beings or anything useful. It's just whatever. And We've really often discussed tries to the, reverse. Yeah, the hatred of uh, literature and philosophy. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, and so Rorty really tries to reverse it and says, no, there's like, they have useful things to say here. I mean, to put it crudely. Um, and that's these vocabulary. So the ironist who has radical and continuing doubts about the vocabulary Here's how, for example, you talk about yourself. And I say, huh, like, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, maybe I can appropriate some of that, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. But he also says the ironist knows that there's really no non-circular way to justify anything in your final vocabulary. Hmm. And so that's kind of the p- part that really starts to irk philosophers and analytical philosophers. Um, because we're right, it's, good, it's about justifying, you know, core principles. And he's basically saying you all walk around with principles and vocabularies that you use to make sense of your lives. And there is no way you can justify them except by recourse to your own vocabulary, right? You can't step outside your own language or, you know, achieve some God's eye view and justify them. Right. Mm-hmm. And no one can do this. Everyone's caught in the same kind of, and you use the term contingent circumstances. All your beliefs are contingent. Right. And it's facing up to this contingency um, that Rorty wants us to do. So, mm-hmm. yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, it, it, again, it's another useful kind of language it feels mm-hmm. like for engaging with the, the balance that we're always trying to do with our skepticism and our beliefs. Because I think, I imagine Rorty would still say, you know, some webs of beliefs are more functional or more useful or something than others. And so should be encouraged in various kinds of ways. And so, like, we're still trying mm-hmm. to, it seems to me, build a case for 
you know, better accounts of the universe that doesn't like collapse into nihilism, yeah. it seems like, or radical subjectivism. It seems like, would, would you say that he's more like a pluralist, that he just is sort of very, fairly open-minded about the idea that you could chunk the world in a variety of internally consistent and acceptable ways? Yeah, and he's going to say even further that like in none of those vocabularies, even science cuts reality at the joints, right? Mm-hmm, like, right. And, and he's going to be pretty hard about that point too, you know, like, which, you know, you can argue. I mean, that's what everybody would argue with him for the majority of his career. And he's nothing gets closer to reality than anything else. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd say, yeah, I mean, he, I don't think he, he uses pluralist a couple of times, but, you know, that's, a, that's like a very Jamesian notion that I'm sure he's, he picked up and, and yeah, I'm I'm 100 sure he would agree with that. Uh, I'd also note that he, I agree with you that it's it's not just ironism in this book. He he, mm-hmm. ironism and liberalism go hand in hand. So that's another mm-hmm. important thing to note. He calls it the liberal ironist, and the a liberal, according to Rorty, is um, he uses um, he borrows a definition from another political philosopher. Uh, that cruelty is the worst thing we can do. A liberal is someone who thinks cruelty is the worst thing we can do. So, and he's going to hook up and say, yeah, like I, I'm a liberal ironist. Like he thinks liberal ironists are the way to go. And he, and he knows that there's no recourse to arguing for liberalism <laughs> other yeah. than just, you know, his own language and justifications. And he, and he gets that and he's, and, and what he wants to do is project is saying, we're not going to, I'm not going to try and provide foundations for liberalism, but I'm going to try and show you that this is a better way of looking. I'm going to try and make liberalism look better by playing up its strengths and all those other positions over there by downplaying them and making them look worse. That's literally what he says. And and his whole philosophy, his whole method as philosophy has been that, you know, Heidegger, look at how good this part of Heidegger is. Look at how bad this part of Kant is. And he's not arguing by, the kind of logical, regimented argumentation that analytical philosophers, he's just saying, look at all the bad parts over here and look at all the good parts over here and hopes to convince you because that's how he thinks kind of it works. It's it's a social justificatory practice, not a, you know, philosophical or epistemological one. Interesting. So I realize we're running really short on time here, unfortunately. No, you're good. Um, no, this is lots of good stuff. I was wondering, is there any sort of final topics that we haven't touched on that you feel like Rorty is particularly valuable on um, that you would just want to at least sort of drop a pin in for folks if they wanted to do a little bit more reading? Um, I will say I I, I want to <laughs> I think there's a part of this 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 conversation that I probably did poorly in, and that was his when he got political, of course. And I know that probably came off poorly. I think when I listen to it, I'll probably want to rip my ears out. But I, I think I everyone do, who listens to themselves wants to rip their ears out and everyone thinks they've done poorly. So I think you're yeah. over overly criticizing yourself here. But, Still, yeah. I, I don't want Roy to get clumped in. I mean, he's as concerned as anyone, I mean, about a free and open and cruelty-free human future. So mm-hmm. I don't want to come across as he's like, get admired in these debates and an anti-identity politics. He has a very kind of interesting, but I would encourage people to read achieving our country, especially now. I think it's a very useful thing to read. Um, Mm -hmm. And kind of, and he's got a collection of interviews he did um, published. It's probably more expensive, but he does clarify a lot of his kind of positions that he kind of very treats very superficially in that, but still convincingly. Um, But yeah, I'd say read that book. It's his most accessible. The other one other book he wrote, um, he's got philosophical papers and volumes of those, but in 1999, he came out with a collection of basically for, you know, the everyday reader of philosophy and social hope, which is another great collection. Um, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. a lot like achieving our country. It's just made up of little essays that he writes, um, all across about literature, you know, politics, money and politics, all that good stuff. So that's mm-hmm. another really accessible volume that he wrote later in his life. And, um, yeah, and I, I'll, I'll put one more for the hardcore philosophers out there who don't want something necessarily accessible to the general public. <laughs> Rorty and his critics uh, is a volume written, uh, edited by, I think, Brandom, and it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Not only does it show all, it bring up to light all the issues that Rorty basically talked about over the course of his life. I think it was published in 2001 or something like that. But it shows how easygoing of a character Rorty was and how open to hearing other people, and th- which is just not necessarily what you see all the time in, in academic philosophy. In those pages, you will find Rorty um, 
I talked to a philosopher who actually wrote for that volume. He said, conceding is the wrong word for what he does in those pages. Rody was always interested in conversation, mm-hmm. um, continuing the conversation and basically adjusting little bits of it, you know, his web as he goes along for mistakes he's made. And you'll see him time and time again, that volume say, yep, Dennett, you're, you were right about that. You know, yep, hmm. Ramberg, you were right about that. And I'll, I'll adjust accordingly. And, and it's just a great back and forth volume that I encourage everybody to read because it really brings out not only his ability to argue with the big guns, and there are mm-hmm. big guns in that in that book, but his ability to kind of, um, again, concede, but also I wouldn't call it that, you know, the two sure. you know, major philosophers. So, yeah, that's what I would that's, say. That sounds really cool. And I think it is good that we understand the criticisms of folks like Rorty of political stuff that's going on right now, because, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like in the absence of engaging with good faith critiques, you know, the bad faith critiques fill the market. And, and I think it's good to have this healthy functional alternative to engage with. So I think you've you've done a great job um, holding it off this long, but I think we have to do now the enlightening round. Mm. Um, you you are familiar oh, wait, with the show, just, folks. Just by the way, what you know yeah. about Rorty and what you know about me being a Rorty, and this is going to be a very frustrating round, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I tend to find the pragmatist to often be quite frustrating on this front. Yeah. Um, but it's you I'll know, continue it, that it tradition. Is, yeah, that's great. Um, so for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me are those things real or not real. Those are your options. You cannot hedge. You cannot give a lengthy explanation of uh, your socially contextualized definition of realness. Uh, Real or not real. I can't pick anything else? Nope. Real or not real. This changes the game. Okay. (laughs) Oh, you thought you you were going to torture me in this thing. No, no, no. It's the other way around. Um, Wait, so what does my silence say? No, there's no silence. You have to give an answer. So (laughs) are you ready? Yeah, can I say one thing? Yeah, <laughs> no, very briefly. No, I, no, no okay. I wanted I wanted to hedge, but go ahead. Okay, I'll, I'll... no, no, no. You can save your hedging for uh, when you get canceled online. Um, Fair yeah. Okay. So, is anything real? Um. Yes. Okay. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? No. It's free will real. This is the worst. Uh, yes. <laughs> Selves or persons? No. Genders? No. Races? No. Species? Yes. Morality? No. Rights? No. Knowledge? No. God or gods? Yes. Society? No. Money? Yes. Numbers? <laughs> no. Fictional characters? Yes. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Yes. Chairs? Yes. Sandwiches? Yes. Science? No. Natural laws? No. Beauty? Yes. Causality? No. And finally, time? Yes. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? That was terrible, considering I wasn't allowed. Like, that's a torture device for your guests, I'm sure. Yeah, it's absolutely the worst. It's um, a, a very exquisite kind of torture. Um, I mean, that yeah. is very calculated and is very cruel, especially considering I just told you that cruelty is just about the worst thing we can do as a species, and you yeah, put me through that. The weirdest thing was I accidentally happened. Like, it, it literally was like I created it in a lab by accident, and it turned out to be like the most virulent form of torture that you could imagine. It's terrible. I thought it was it's terrible. You know, yeah, well, thank you so much. This has been um, a lot of fun. I really appreciate this chat. And I'm uh, there were some very interesting responses there that hopefully people can pick apart a little bit. There's a little bit of uh, interesting yeses and nos. Um, but Adrian, I really appreciate it. Do you want to let folks know uh, where they can find your work in various places? Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really write a ton for academic journals, but I do edit a online publication uh, with a few people called Liberal Currents, which I write occasionally there for. And I wrote a couple pieces on Rorty there and, and Dewey. And 
national pride and patriotism, which again are already in topics. So um, you can check those out there, uh, or you know, I'm on Twitter. I kind of just sometimes I troll, but if you have any serious questions, I'd be happy <laughs> to talk to you and have a good conversation. But other than that, yeah, that's it's been great being here, and uh, um, yeah, keep keep up the good work. Yeah, and I think you mentioned you work with a skeptic society locally. If you wanted to. For folks who oh, might be yeah, it's not necessarily a skeptic society. It's actually, okay. um, it's the Society of Philosophers in America. It's a chapter okay. uh, where the Western Reserve Philosophical Society. And we just, I just foster open conversations. We have socials and stuff. So um, if you're in the greater Cleveland area, uh, you can find us online by searching Western Reserve Philosophical Society. But with all the COVID stuff going on, we haven't had many events. So sadly, um, fair enough. TBD on events. Right on. Well, thank you so much for coming. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Blacknonbelievers.com, blacknonbelievers.com, blacknonbelievers.com. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Chad T. And thanks so much to our top-tier patrons, the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon and Dave Maslish. Really, none of this would be possible without you. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. Most importantly, never forget, you are the void, and the void is you. 